Welcome back. Tim was busy, so I'm joined by Dwayne Newstater and our guest, Dennis McKeeran. In this episode, we talk about outdoor activities, Dennis's Native American experiences, Irish history, a sense of history in place, high-speed travel versus low-speed travel, how we mark time, a poetry performance, the difference between the sacred and the profane. So, Dennis, you know, you do a lot of different activities like that, and you've maintained it for a lot of your life. Like, what is it about it besides just physical fitness? Is there more to it, like, for you? <laughs> but with, it's all Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, it, you've been diligent with it. I don't know. I only know a few people that are as diligent with their cross-country as you, but I know a lot of people do do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, cross-country is a, a wonderful, wonderful exercise because it's such a complete body exercise it's not just one or three or six muscle groups it's your whole body and cardiovascular and everything else so it, it's one of the perfect exercises and so uh i enjoy it for that but the, the key thing is it gets me out into the outdoors and the fresh air and the, seeing the moose uh, and you know the coyotes and stuff uh deer everywhere it's it's just uh it's just me so I just live for it, yeah. But if I don't get to ski at least 20 times a winter, there's something wrong. You know, it's hard to justify a beard if I haven't skied 20 times, you know. So, um, <laughs> anyway. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I found that uh, we don't we don't get the consistent enough snow, so I've never taken up skiing. I've never wanted to do downhill because I never wanted to ice skate down a hill. Um, <laughs> but I love being, I think I love being out in the woods in the winter more than yeah. any other time of the year. And I think it sounds selfish, but the best reason to say that is so few people are out there, you know? Yeah. It's like you can even go to a place that's very popular um, and it's relatively empty, especially if you go like during the week or something. Yeah. And that's and there's a there's a stillness or a quiet, quietness to the woods in the winter that doesn't exist um, in the summer um, yeah. that I find very peaceful. Absolutely. I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah. I think that would do it. You know, there's there's always been more of a draw for me to want to get out in the woods in the wintertime. Now, maybe some of that comes from, you know, if wanting to hunt, you know, you know, spending the last 20 years or so, you know, as an active hunter during hunting seasons and stuff. And so maybe it's it's been kind of a cyclic thing, but there's just, I just find it, you know, and, I, and maybe it was just, that was the only time I had time to take vacation, you know, or doing it, being an arborist. I mean, I can't take off in July, I'd lose my job. Yeah. Um, so I think that might've been part of it too. And it just, it, I, I found like winter camping and stuff, there was so much less restrictions because if it was cold enough, you could camp anywhere. If yeah. there was snow in the ground, you could really camp anywhere because yeah. um, there was water <laughs> everywhere. Um, and it was, we had some, some really good times, you know, doing, I just love the woods in the winter. There's just something that, I find it somehow maybe even more rewarding, right? Like, cause it's, cause, you know, being on the East coast, it's not that we don't have large tracts of woods, but it's not what you would call wilderness. But, you know, if it gets cold enough and you go out and do the wrong thing and act stupid enough, you can die just as quickly on 20 acres as you could on, you know, 20,000. So I think, you know, maybe even there was part of it, um, a little part of like some risk involved or it was, it just somehow seemed a little more fulfilling. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dwayne, I mean, you're a hunter. I mean, you you got a buck recently and stuff. And um, I mean, you were out in that element and stuff. And every time I see you in those hunting photos that I've seen over the years, 
I mean, you're at peace. You're you're at one with your environment and stuff. And I I, th I think really good hunters get that, you know. Um, so what's your take on it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I get it, though. I, um, you know, I think, like you said, and just getting out, like, you know, it's one thing nice about having a dog, right? Because you go for walks and one needs to go for walks. Gets It forces you a little bit more. I'm definitely out more because of it, right? And and once, you know, it's that whole thing. It's the whole bust and a move thing, I find, for me. Um, <clears throat> I remember listening to, I, I can't remember the speaker, but her whole thing was just, like, as soon as you have the idea, like, start doing it. Like, you go, I think I should go for a, a run. Like, get your shoes on and get going. Don't, if you think about it, for even a minute, you'll talk yourself out of it or something, right? All right. And uh, that that the dog can give you that push, and you know once you're out, I don't know. Yeah, there's something about the cold and the elements, and just being in the in nature wherever it is. It, you don't have to go far, a park, anything. Um, and yeah, you're you're connected in a different way mm -hmm. that that you don't get on Netflix or whatever, which we all I think you know everyone has spends a bit of time doing that, but. That's all you do. You you miss something, I think. And whether it's hunting, or canoeing, or cycling, even golf, right? Like, it's an outdoor activity. So, and that's probably what you know. If I think about it, Dennis, that's probably what you and I do more together as an outdoor activity than anything else. Probably is golf, actually. Golf, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. not a hunter, but absolutely, we're. We we've done lots of hiking through bush and stuff and walking and hiking, but uh, in the mountains or wherever. But we've done more golf than anything else, and even that, like you say, you know, go golf is 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 a good walk outdoors gone bad. You know, that's what it really is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just being outside is everything to me. Uh, um, people kind of kid me and 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 uh, about my skin color because I'm I'm always tan and people say oh God you're tan where'd you just get back from you know uh, olds I live in olds and uh, they're like well <laughs> how come you're so dark uh, I'm always this color <laughs> but I just live out, yeah. outdoors as much as I can and you know I think come the warmer summer temperatures you know clothes are kind of optional like. Uh, I hate clothes in the summer. <laughs> I was going to say, I, 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 it just dawned on me, uh, Tony, uh, uh, Dennis will make excursions to Arizona. Where do you go exactly there again, Dennis? Uh, not too many places I haven't. The, the Four Corners is my favorite part of North America. And uh, Southern Utah I know probably better than anywhere else. Um, but yeah, there's... Zion, uh, Arches, uh, Bryce Canyon, uh, Canyonlands, all my favorite parks. And uh, so, yeah, I know them pretty well. And, and you may, you may or may, sorry, you may or may not have been known to 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 hit the trail with like maybe a loincloth at best. <laughs> <laughs> one time, one time I had a pair of very short shorts on and. And I had a camera bag at that time that, that had a long lens on the camera. And, and it was a heavy camera to carry. So I got this uh, waist pouch that I could just drop the camera in the waist pouch and stuff. And 
the shorts were small enough that from a distance you really couldn't see the shorts. And it just looked like a guy in a loincloth with a camera <laughs> down there. And uh, I was at Bryce Canyon and I came around a corner and there was a group of Japanese tourists or a family or something. And they just kind of totally freaked out. Here's this guy like who's a foot and a half taller than them and he's dark brown and he's got no clothes on other than this camera bag or so it seemed. And they didn't speak a word of English. They just ran the other way. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't like clothes uh, in the summer. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't really get away with it in the winter. It would be devastating. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you know, something else, I guess, when I think about it, that we've also, uh, what, you know, you introduced me to and some of my family, but, um, and again, it involves outdoors and the river and nature, but is when, is, is it your involvement with sweats and mm. I guess even Native First Nation culture, really. Yeah. I think you have a affinity there as well. Yeah. You know, the story you told me about, doing the program i can't remember somebody was using the facility at natuk lodge and you would advise them that they needed to uh, talk to somebody or the elders to appease the spirits and was that yeah was that your yeah yeah and and, and they they needed to do it retro because things were going south is that really you know like you that's always fascinated me about you yeah yeah i i studied uh indigenous culture the plains uh, indigenous peoples for quite a few years at nakota lodge there was a a pretty well-known indigenous studies uh, collection there of books and videotapes and photographs and things from the turn of the century and it's one of the best collections in western canada and um, i got to know the librarian i went to that lodge every summer the nakota lodge is a big resort it's a big uh, facility, and we would have the Great Teacher Seminar there. And uh, the Great Teacher Seminar was a gathering of uh, community college instructors from across Canada. And I was one of a team of facilitators. And we did this. We were, we were uh, at that time, we were at a little place called Kananaskis Guest Ranch. And then they made the decision, we need a bigger venue. And I had been studying Native Studies in the basement of Nakota Lodge and so I knew of this lodge and so I said to the organizers of the seminar I said there's this lodge just down the road here that's a fabulous lodge it's on an Indian reserve a native reserve um, would you guys like to have a look at it? and the the key facilitators from this were from the states and so they said yeah let's go look at it so they looked at it and they just kind of looked at each other and said oh this is the place we got to come here so they moved the whole seminar the following year to nakota lodge so our first year that we were at nakota lodge we start the teacher seminar up and there's people there's you know 40 or 50 people there from across canada and and even some from the states and uh and within a day a day and a half of the seminar starting. It's a five-day intensive seminar. We start at seven in the morning, go till nine thirty at night, and um, within a day there was stuff going sideways really badly. Like one guy's mother died or was dying. She had to be rushed to hospital. She was in the process of dying, 
he had to leave the seminar right now to fly to Toronto to get to his mom. And then the next morning, there was another guy whose wife and, and kids were in a car accident, a very serious car accident. One of his kids was in intensive care and stuff. He bailed the next morning. It's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get to my family. And all these calamities. And I mean, I've been doing the seminar for probably three years at that point, And I'd never seen this this whole thing going sideways like that. And so I went to the organizers and I said, did anybody here talk to any of the native elders on the reserve before you set this seminar up? Like, did you guys like ask permission and, and talk to the elders? And they said, no, we just rent the facility. We just booked the hotel and that's it. And I said, well, guys, you, he, that's not the way it works. You can't do that. You don't take... 50 white people from across the country and just plunk them down on a reserve and, and say, hey, go about your business and stuff. No, like there's a whole karma thing here. Like you, you, you have to make an offering to the elders. You have to ask permission. You have to do this in the right fashion. You're, you're not in white man's world anymore. Okay. You're in an indigenous culture and you have to show respect. And if we haven't shown the proper respect, then stuff's going to go sideways on us. And these calamities that we're seeing, they're not accidents. There's, you know, we got to take this seriously. And they kind of looked at me and said, okay, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, we have to make offerings to the elders. And so I said, I'll get back to you in an hour. And I knew some of the elders on the reserve because I'd been hanging out at Nakota for a while. And I went to one and I said, we're in a bit of a bind here. We we came to this um, place, Nakota Lodge, and we did not pay respects to the elders, and we did not ask for permission to be here, and we brought no offerings. Is it too late to do something? And he smiled and he says, oh no, the spirits, they're not on a timeline. You know, you do what you need to do. And I said, okay, um, can I what time do you finish work today? And he says, five o'clock. And I said, okay, I'll be here at five o'clock with some offerings. So I, I run into Cochrane and I buy four pieces of fabric of four different colors and stuff representing the different directions and a pouch of tobacco. And I bring it back to the facilitators and I say, here's the offerings. You're the head facilitator. You have to take this to this elder and ask for permission for us to be here and to ask him to say prayers for our group. And he says, I have to do this. And yes, you're the head guy. You're, that's what you got to do. And I just hand him this bundle. And I said, yeah, that's what you do. And so he did. And everything stopped. You know, like that night we were back on track and there was no more problems the rest of that seminar. But I think there was like three major life-threatening events for participants at this seminar. And in all the years I did that seminar, 22, 24 years I did that seminar, um, we never saw anything like that again, ever. And we never saw those kind of calamities ever coalesce in a short period of time like that as well. Um, I mean, you might have one incident where something terrible happened to one participant out of 50 over a five-day window, but to have like three of them in the first 18 hours of the seminar, it was just like something wrong here. There's something really wrong. And so that's what that was about. Yeah. 
You know, I, I remember you accompanied myself and the family when I, I would do that pro bono climbing training for the bat researchers in Cypress Hills. Yeah. And uh, there's the massacre that took place out there, and there's the the monument there at Fort Walsh, the stone epitaph of, you know, for the massacre that occurred to all the, the Cree with the wolfers, as they were called. And then there's another area that had bundles in there and there was a log over kind of where they were. And, and I'd been going there for years and I'd seen them and I pointed it out to you. Okay. And I'll never forget, we were walking up to it and, 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 and I stepped over the log and you were like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And I was, I'm like, what? Like, I had no idea. You said, you've just entered the, the sacred space here, man. Like, this log is the door. Like, this is, the, this is like, you're going to go in there, man. Like, you need to, like, and I had no idea. So maybe, you know, I, I, I it changed. It really changed the way I looked at things and, and considered it. Because they've been replenishing those medicine bundles, I think is what they're called, for Ever since the massacre, which was in the 18... It was when the, the MP was formed, 1850 or something like that. Mm. So, like... And they go back to this day and keep those alive. So, I don't... Like, I know you've talked a bit about it, but, like, what do you know about their purpose and existence and, and what's in them? And what's, what's it all about, the whole medicine bundle thing? Well, the, that particular group of medicine bundles were to commemorate the massacre of, of the indigenous people there. And, uh, and they don't forget, they got long memories, man. Like, like for them, it was three years ago, even though it was like, you know, back in the 1870s or something, I think it was. And, uh, you know, a long time ago, but to them it's fresh and it's still a sacred place for them. And, the medicine bundle is, as, as I understand it, I mean, I'm not indigenous and it's only what I've heard other elders talk about. And there are different traditions. The, the Cree have a different tradition than the Blackfoot, than the Shoshone or the Cheyenne, and they all have different traditions. But as I understand the medicine bundle, it's, it's meant as a, uh, a prayer bundle. That's what they would call it as a prayer bundle. And each family will make their own prayer bundle of things that have sacred meaning to them, to their family. And they'll put together a, a, a group of objects in a very small piece of fabric and then tie it up with a ribbon and then just tie this little bundle onto a tree. And, and that's their their medicine offering, their, their, uh, their homage to the people who went before. It, it can be made up of natural objects like pieces of bark or bone or whatever. It can be little objects from their home. It could be a, a, a trinket. It could be anything. Um, it's anything that has some sort of sacred um, value to them. And that, that's what they, they give as an offering um, in memory of this event that happened a long time ago. So... Huh. I mean, some of the yeah. stuff that some people put in things like sage for purification, and uh, some people will put in sweet grass to invite good spirits and, and bring good spirits to look over these people who have passed and stuff. So there's a variety of things that they put in their their bundles, and I don't I don't know. Yeah. I've never been at a bundle making ceremony to see what they put in them. 
But from what right, right. elders that I've talked to have said, they, it, it varies. Right. It's interesting. You know, I know that you have a, a deep Irish heritage as well and connect on that level with your Celtic background. I think it would be fair to say the right word, I think. But like, is there, do you correlate or relate those two, like your personal familial background and then your connection with, you know, First Nations here, because well, the Celts themselves were an, an original type race I, of sorts, I think. Okay, yeah. like back or the. Well, I, I I'm a. Do you ever thought about that? Because I. Yeah, I'm a genealogy nut. I uh, I've been doing research on it for about six or seven years now, and I I get deeper and deeper into it each year. And it, it's fun. It's like being part of a historical detective and thing to find out what happened in your history. And especially in Ireland, because the records aren't good prior to the early 1800s and stuff in Ireland. And so it's, uh, it's a lot of sleuthing. Um, but I, the spiritual aspect of the genealogy work I do is pretty minimal versus my understanding of indigenous culture, which is heavily imbued with spirituality. Um, and I guess I, uh, I really resonate with indigenous cultures approach to the sacred of what you find sacred in your life and, and what has what you determine to be sacred in your own life and in your own world. And I really resonate with that. And I'm sure that you know, having done all this historical study of, of Irish culture and Celtic culture, um, the, the ancient Celtic people had a very, very rich and, and deep spirituality, largely affected, of course, by the Catholicism in, in the UK and the British Isles and stuff. Um, but they were an island that was invaded again and again uh, by everything from the Vikings to the Romans to uh, all sorts of different cultures invaded Ireland and, and affected the history there. And so their, their spirituality is a really uh, complex uh, sense of spirituality. I mean, the ancient Druids would be the closest they would have to an indigenous spirituality would, would be the ancient druids. And, uh, but they were deeply influenced by the Romans who invaded Ireland. And uh, there's a book by uh, Thomas Cahill called How the Irish Saved Civilization. It's a wonderful read. It's, uh, it's how history as we know it of Western culture would not be what we know it today if it weren't for the Irish. And that's because in Roman times, right after the fall of the Greek Empire and the, the oncom, the, the, uh, the, the culmination of the Roman Empire, they invaded Ireland. And the people they brought home as slaves were all these monks. And these monks were literate. They could read and write in three and four different languages, uh, Latin and, and uh, French, uh, Spanish. And, and so they could read and write. And writing was a very rare commodity back in that time period. And so the Romans encountered these, these religious monks, these Irish monks, and said, these guys are pretty smart, you know, we, sh we should take them home and and we should get them to write our books for us, you know, because they can write. They know, they know, and they can, 
they can take what what our Roman history is and they can translate it into Greek and to Spanish and I mean and so they brought you know these thousands of, of monks home and just set up shop and all they did was transcribe uh, all the documents of Rome and much of the Western culture based on Roman and Greek writings um, was early recorded by Irish monks. So Thomas Cahill's title is is kind of appropriate, you know, the Irish saved civilization because they were educated. And why was that? How did there that uh, happen? Educated people who could have the linguistic skills to record history and and translate it into other languages. But how did they know? How did the Irish monks know the languages and the ability to do that? Where did they? Like, how did that happen for them in the first place? Well, I mean, the Romans came over and they conquered everything, right? And then they said, well, let's load up with all the gold crosses from their churches and everything else, steal all the gold, and let's take a whole bunch of slaves home and make our lives easier. And so that's what they did. And they filled, you know. That's part of their culture. That was part of their culture was to, uh, to, to, prolificate the Christian faith, we need to be able to speak all these languages in all these other countries. If we're going to spread the word of God, right, we have to be able to do it in French and Spanish and in, you know, Roman and Greek and all these other cultures, you know, and their intention, you know, make no mistake was to take over the world, for sure. <laughs> so they, they, they figured out we got to learn to speak the language. And they did. And so uh, you had all these this collection of a brain trust, if you will, that the Romans basically just took out Ireland, took them to Rome and got them, you know, to translate. <laughs> it's a really interesting book. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. It's, uh, you know, I, I was when you were talking, I'm thinking like, you know, uh, you know, your 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 own background was affected by invaders or takeovers and, and influence the outcome and 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 you're still uh have an affinity to that with your native studies here because a lot you know quite literally that happened to the first nations here as well mm -hmm. yeah well it's the history of colonialism it is it's it's the same everywhere in every country in the world where colonialism has happened which is probably two-thirds of the world has been colonized by other cultures and stuff and right. uh I mean, I think that is the, the, the traditional story of colonization. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the history is just so much longer and richer in Europe than it is here. I mean, our country, our culture here is only like 150, 200 years old, really. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember being in, uh, in Schopenhagen, in, in Copenhagen, and... Uh, Went into a lunch place one time, and and uh, <laughs> I probably asked a typical stupid North American question, like, "So, how long has this been like a restaurant or a pub or whatever this is?" And the guy says, uh, "Six hundred eighty-four years." <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, right, sure. And he says, "No, really." And he said, "Turn your menu over, and here's the history of it." And it had been a public serving house for like almost 700 years they'd had public hangings there they had had stonings there they had 
no, and they were still serving ale and and food in this place, <laughs> and uh, and and I, I just I shook my head like this is real like you're in a place that's been serving you know beer beer pub food for seven hundred years you know and our whole culture in North America is like not even two hundred years old you know. And, yeah. Man, we think something's old if it's like 50 or 60 years, you know. <laughs> yeah. 700. <laughs> I, had the, I had the same experience. Even here, I live in Pennsylvania on the East Coast. So it's like, you know, an, the oldest building in Chester County where I live is a log cabin. It was built like 1701, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, you know, when, I, when, I'm in the, when I'm in the Army, I, I was stationed in Germany. We used to go to a, a, a place called the Marsbrau, which was a brewery, but had, you know, like... um basically a seating area you could sit in and that place had been open for like 650 years like <laughs> literally the wooden benches were, were literally like grooves where people's asses like wore in over 600 some years and they still served beer like they still had it in the big wooden barrels and you still had the nozzle and the hammer and you jammed the bung in and it's like they only did two types of beer they did vu beer and old beer depending on the time of the year and you were literally sitting there with a bunch of germans playing their version of like spades i even forget what you called it but it's kind of like a this spades but there's really only face cards and you sit and it suddenly it dawned on me it's like jesus people have been doing this exact same things for like 600 years right here <laughs> you know it's like it, it was really really interesting and, and and you know me being in my you know very early 20s it was very eye-opening like jesus there is like yeah. There is a whole world out there, you know, beyond Pennsylvania. Like, yeah. wow, you know, like yeah. something other than New Holland, Pennsylvania exists. And, <laughs> you know, I, uh, and it's funny. It's, I, and I think back on it now, like my father was very much into Native American culture. It was it was very much of a pursuit for him. Um, I think he studied it more from a technical standpoint, I'd want to say, than a spiritual standpoint. But, uh, you know, and just through his experiences here in eastern Pennsylvania, I got sort of from a, from a very early age involved in that culture and the, the cultures that were here before so for me it was kind of almost i don't want to say second nature but it wasn't totally foreign but then it really makes you look at the land you're on now like you know there were mm -hmm. cultures here hundreds of years before it was chester county pennsylvania and you and you look at those things and the, why are things named certain ways you know and you still have some of the very and it's just it's an interesting it opens up a lot of history and i, I think it takes a certain amount of maturity i don't think 20 year olds get it um, I don't think thirty-year-olds get it. I think maybe you could stumble into it in your forties, but somehow when you're when you, when you get closer to the end of the beginning, um, you appreciate those things more. I'm not sure why, well, but uh, it's you know I had a similar experience. I'll never forget it as well. Very much exactly the same lines. You know, I was I was in Italy with Gabriella, and uh, he was doing a reno on his bathroom in his apartment, and he, it lives and it's it's in. Uh, um, What's the name of the town? Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a small little town. I'll think of it. Cobblestone roads built by the Romans, everything else. And he's got, and in his backyard, there's a little artesian well, water coming out of it, you know. And real old place. I don't know. You know, that, that's all I would have described it as. And I, I went in the washroom, and I noticed he's, the walls are off, and there's, there's stone and chunks of, like, pieces of broken marble and pillar and just, and I'm like, Grandpa, what? What the hell? Like, what is this? He said, "Oh, that's that's cobbled from like, some of the the Roman um, emperors, not the emperors, but when the fall happened, like the temples got knocked down, uh, stuff was raised by Attila and other whatever, and, and the rubble would be gathered up for people to use to build with." 
And he says, these are like, it's remnants and it's, it's made the walls of my house. This house was built with this stuff. And I'm like, how the hell? I said, how old is your house? And he said, oh, he said it was built in about 600, you know, and I was like, what? He said it was and it, it built in 600. That's when it was built. He said the town was built, been here since like the late 580s, you know, and I'm like going, what? So I'm looking at a wall that's been like at the time it was, it was early 2000s and like, this is like 1400 year old dwelling. Then I'm in it, and there's a modern bathroom here, but the wall is exposed because he's doing some work, and I'm looking at the original frame of it, and, and, and then I look at the road outside, totally different, and I say, that that artesian well in your backyard? He said, yeah, he said, that's been here since the beginning. So the water's been flowing out of that thing since day one. He says, yeah, about, about. You know, and I was just like, and we would put our cup under it and just drink out of it, right? Like, it was in his yard. It was just blew my mind at the magnitude of, you know, we just don't have that here, like you guys are saying. But I do also find it interesting just in this conversation now, and you mentioned, you touched on it, Tony, that, and is that, and Dennis, it takes me back, right back to the, the prayer bundles in Cypress Hills, that what a culture that was here, I don't know, like, do we know really how long or when, like, because they were here at that time in 600, right? The Romans were building roads over there, and they were tying prayer bundles over here, probably. Could have been. Could you know, been. like... I don't know. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting how, you know, that culture didn't... Or we just can't see the legacy in the same way. Like, like we don't see... Maybe we're just blind to it. Like, we don't see... Our eyes don't see the, the, the depressions in the landscape, which was where they stayed. You know, that is that old or that type of thing. You know what I mean? It's fascinating. Yeah. It's really I, fascinating. A couple of years ago, I was over in Ireland doing some genealogy research, and uh, and uh, we meet this guy. He's a McKernan, but he's not related to us. And uh, anyway, we we end up in Dublin on the the centenary Sunday. The the uh, what was it now the oh the the anniversary of the uh, revolt in Ireland. And uh, and it was a national holiday. It was a, a huge deal. It was like the hundred year anniversary. And uh, we ended up in Dublin in this pub with this other McKernan. And and he he looks at me and my brother and he's like, and he kind of laughs. And I said, what? What's so funny? And he said, well, he said, um, my sisters and I. He he brought his two sisters and and we had a we had a wonderful time with them. And, and he said, we were talking about it last night that you, you two Canadians have come here looking for your roots and your family and stuff like that. And, and, and we just find it kind of comical that you'd come from Canada over here to do this, your history of your family. And I said, well, why is that funny? And he said, well, we know where we're from. <laughs> and he said, that's the problem with all of the Irishmen who left. They don't know why they left. And so now they're, they're always wanting to come home, right? And he said, we never left. And, and I said, so you haven't done any genealogy research? And he said, well, hell no. We're all from here. We haven't left here. We're still here. We don't care what the history is. It doesn't matter. We're still here. We haven't left. 
<laughs> it's like, mm. There was no need to do genealogy <laughs> if you're Irish and you still live in Ireland. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, true. You know, it's, it's, you know, the farther you go from Eden, right, the more you miss it and the more you go back, mm. you know. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, that, that taking a cup and having a glass of water from an artesian well that's been flowing immemorial, that's probably as close as we are ever get to the Garden of Eden, you know some experience like that yeah. a cup of water from a well that is timeless yeah like not everybody can say that no. you know that's a different it's a different view of history and i think when you sit there and that artesian wells in your backyard every day yeah. and you get used to it you see the world differently yeah as as my that my friend gene mckernan in 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 uh in ireland sees the world differently uh, being an Irishman, he sees differently than I see it, and uh, um, you see it differently when you're more intimately connected with um, those direct links to history and stuff. Yeah. What? Yeah. There's definitely when you when you have a very strong sense of place. There's a certain I almost want to say peace or something that goes with that. That you'll notice that people that have a very strong sense of place have a certain calmness or attribute about him or a certain steadiness to him that is um i mean explains a lot right i mean even you know you, you look at places in the third world right they're not wealthy by our by any means but they're happy people and they have a very yeah. strong sense of serenity yeah. i mean really that yeah well that sense of place is probably what's led to war right like yeah. the, the wanting to defend that or wanting somebody else's sense of place or something and it's something maybe not so much maybe for canadians but i think more so for americans you see that that wanderlust that always looking for something else i think has been a big part of the american dream if you want to you know air quote that up or that that drive for manifest destiny whatever you call it and it's funny how you know, you, you get to a certain point in your personal life where you have find yourself turning around and having to find a, your way back home. And I think that happens to cultures to an extent, too. Whereas cultures that never left, they don't have to turn around. They, they're still there. It's like, who cares about the history? If I want to know the history, I'll ask my neighbor. <laughs> See what his granddad remembers. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's that is it is interesting when you when you look at that and how that how that sense of place, you know, the difference between the the physical place you live and then the cultural place that is kind of implanted on top of it yes yeah. it's, it's an interesting it is in, it, it, it is and how they're interwoven with the uh how for me i guess what i'm I, i'm starting to think about and i think age definitely seasons it but it like how it's interwoven with what we started talking about with the landscape and the the what's around you you know part of what makes that sense of home or belonging like you know like spending five months in thailand last year you know it was never home it was enjoyable and i'd love to go back but i don't know that i we get, it would take, take a major shift to to leave completely like to live there for years on end with the intention of you know exp, exp, expatriating or whatever you know like because this i don't it just won't doesn't matter this will always be home and not only that like i still find i grew up in southern saskatchewan and i still i don't know like bury me in saskatchewan like i when i go to saskatchewan I, and it, it, it uh, I, to this day it doesn't matter i i have a different sense there i feel different there i i feel like the air fills my lungs in a different way like i i don't 
I don't know how to describe it. You know, it just, it, it is really weird, you know. And I mean, I feel that way here too. I've been here long enough that I would say I have too, but that's about all I got as far as true home-like feelings. Like, you know, I, even for me, like getting out of the airplane, as much traveling as I did, if I was blind and I got off an airplane, I could tell you I was in the Calgary airport when I landed by stepping off the plane. <laughs> I would know where I was by the smell or just the air, you know, like mm-hmm. it, no question, you know, it's really weird, but, um, that sense of belonging that comes from that, that it's, it's, it, it's people, but it's also the, 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 the nature, the, the area around you. And I think maybe that's what you get when you go connect outside with it, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really like your choice of words, Tony, about a sense of place, because that really resonates with me. Um, and, you know, Dwayne, I haven't done near the, the travel that you've done. I, I was a road warrior for just five years. I mean, you've lived it for decades and stuff. But in that five years that I did it, every single time I got in whatever vehicle was taking me home, whether I was driving or somebody else was, I wouldn't get one mile from that airport and I'd have this shit-eating grin on my face. It's like, I'm home. I'm home. It didn't matter if it was pitch black. It didn't matter if it was 25 below zero. It didn't matter if it was 25 above zero and it was hot, sunny. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Exactly like you say, the smell, the the humidity, your bones know your home, you know, and... Uh, I just would with this I'd find myself grinning and numerous times people picking me up would say what are you grinning at like what do you is there a joke like did we miss something and no I'm just I'm just happy to be home and it, it's home yeah it's uh yeah. it's my sense of place and uh that's a really good choice of words yeah 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 and I, and I think I think the reason it takes a while for this to dawn on somebody and it comes with age and experience is um, if you're like Gabrielle and you've always had that well in your backyard, if you want to drink a water, you just go in the backyard. You have to go to a place in the world where there's no well in the backyard to appreciate a well in your backyard. You know, you have to be without it for a bit to, um, you know, to to understand that. And I, that for me, and it, you know what you were saying, Dennis, it's really one of the reasons that I like to travel is that to come back home, right? Yeah. Or to appreciate, you know, that and to, and to have that sense of place again. And, you know, sometimes I, I know I found myself traveling. I think I enjoyed getting away um, because I just didn't, well, I mean, when I was like 18, I left the home I grew up in and I never went back, you know, for many reasons. Um, but it's just, you know, that was more of an escape. And now I think over time, it's been, you know, it is that that sense of returning to place and that mm-hmm. where you're, you know, I never sleep well when I'm traveling. Never. Just can't, you know, just yeah. not, you know, sometimes it's just physical. Like, I just want to get home and get a good night's sleep. I miss my toilet. Yeah. You know, like, I, just, I want my own bathroom. You know, like, yeah. you know, where there, it's exactly seven steps from my side of the bed to the toilet. I know those steps by heart. I don't have to think about it, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And when you travel, I wake up in a hotel and Dwayne you've probably done this when you wake up and you're like for the first 10 seconds like okay i know i'm in a hotel but yeah. which one like where, what city what town 
And it's a very, it's a very disconcerting yeah. feeling, you know, to be so far like adrift. It's like, and it's really weird. It's like, oh, gee. And there's been a number of times where I'm like, okay, I know, I'm, okay, okay. So I'm in, I'm in Calgary. Um, where's the bathroom? Because I, it's got to be dark to sleep, right? So I'm like, oh, is it on the right side? I'm like, shit, where's the light? And it's just, it's very, very disconcerting. The thing that I, to go. I, I, my, my touchstone of any motel room that I was ever in was always the telephone on the desk because it always had the name and the city that I was in because I sure shit didn't know. I mean, yeah, right. you know, three, three different cities, four different cities in an eight day window. And, and it's like, and they're all Hilton's, right? So you don't, they all look identical. You don't even know what city you're in yeah. anymore. Yeah. And it's like, thank God. Well, there's a phone. Okay. I got it figured now. I just pick up the phone. Okay. I'm in, I'm in new Orleans. Okay. That's where I, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very weird. The the uh, the intangible bad side of traveling. Like, I don't know where the hell I am. <laughs> or how, I'm I'm sure you've done this one too. You, you like you stop at a store to get some food and you walk out and you can't remember what the rental car is. Like, Son of a bitch! I don't even remember what. And you're walking around with a key fob and you're just trying like thank well, God yeah, for you key just fob. turn it on and hold <laughs> yeah. whichever one dings that must be it. Like, that happened to me two or three times. I come out and I got my bags of food and I'm like. Shit, I have no. I don't remember what the car is because, like, you know, your your mind's going fifty miles a minute. You've been traveling all day, like, and it's just like, was it white? Was it blue? I don't. Shit, and you're yeah. walking around with that key fob, like, like it's like Jesus, and it's really bad because I'm dyslexic. So hotel numbers, like, there were a couple times they'd give me like, like the hotel number would. I always wanted something that was like two twelve. That's a good number for a dyslexic, right? I won't mess that one up. But don't give me like one thirty two because that could be three twenty one. That could be two thirteen. That's there's too many options there. I can't do that. Um, so I literally have to get a hotel room because you're staying in so many hotels. It's like, oh, here's uh, here you go, Mr. Trestled. Here's room 123. Can I have room 212 or 222? Or like, what? I'm like, it's, it's a superstition. It's, it's, but I know I'm not too stupid to remember the number. I mean, it's like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's a very real problem for a dyslexic. You know, you know, a, all the dyslexic in the world will, will untie one day. There's an African myth that says that, well, I don't think it's a myth. I think there's a lot of truth to it. There's an African saying that um, it, it takes two days for your soul to catch up with your body. If your body moves too fast, like you put it on a jet and it goes somewhere, it takes two days for the soul to catch up with the body physically. Wow. And I, in, in the five years that I was a road warrior and I was doing tons of miles every year, I found that that by and large was true. And like you say, you don't know what car you're in, you don't know what hotel, you don't know what city. Like it just blurs um, with lots and lots of travel. There's so much of our life oh. that, that becomes a blur. And I think it's because our soul does get left behind. Um, real rush trips where I was only in a city for a day or two were always the worst. There were some weeks where I had to hit three or four cities in a five-day window. And, you know, you fly halfway across the U.S. to attend a meeting, a four-hour meeting, and then you get on another flight that night to get to your appointment the next morning. And, I mean, you don't even remember where you are. And... Uh, after four or five days of that, it's like it was really, really hard on me, on my soul. And I think it, it's because we do get separated. Our soul gets somehow left behind or diminished. 
the more travel we do. And uh, I know that there's some people, um, they refuse to travel quickly. So they will not travel more than 60 miles an hour because they, their soul cannot uh, go faster than that. And so they have to drive everywhere or take a bus or take a train. Yeah. But they can't take a high-speed train. It's too fast. They have to take a, a regular train. And, and, and so it takes them a long time to go places. And so what they've done is they, they cut way back on their travel because they don't want to be driving for 16 hours. So they just say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. So do you and, think it's a, I mean, some, like a physical type of thing or like a spiritual type of thing, I guess, eh? Or like, because it seems like those are, you're crossing two elements or bare, like, you know, the spiritual realm with the physical realm. Yeah. I, well, it's, it's more than just physical. I mean, physically, are we physically able to function by moving that quickly? Sure we are. Yeah. But... Are we doing so with a mindful approach? Are we aware of our surroundings? Are we aware of what we're eating or what we're doing or anything else? We may not be. Well, I mean, I remember when I was yeah. Go ahead. traveling like that, people would say, you know, what did you have for lunch yesterday? And say, like, I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, if you give me five minutes, I could probably figure it out. You know, I've got a receipt somewhere in my wallet that I could figure out what I had, but you know, you, you, you're less aware, you're less mindful of the things in your life. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a, it, it's a, I, I'm just referring to it as soul, because that's kind of some of the words we've been using. Okay. But it, to me, it's a mindfulness issue. Right. Um, I'm mm-hmm. far less mindful when I'm uh, traveling at a high speed. Well, you know, it's interesting, because, you know, like, I, 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 I think I'm, Correct and isn't it Einstein's theory of relativity? Relativity that you know, as hypothesized, that there could be time travel if you actually went fast enough. And even though we're not going at the speed of light, we're going considerably faster than normally we could ever go. That on some level, that there is that that time continuum being affected, even however small, because it's certainly not near the speed of light, but. Maybe there is something to be said for that, and that's for that. You know, there's always an ounce of truth in everything, right? Like, there's always, there's something. I don't know, that's fascinating. I never thought of that or heard that before. Mm-hmm. Tony, you're, you're the, you're the one. Never thought you're, of, Tony, you're learned. Eh. No, I, don't know. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. It would, it, And I totally agree with you when you said it. I'm like, yeah, that does make sense. And soul or whatever you want to call it is fine, that disassociation. I think that's why... Um, you know, and I think you, you, two of you having traveled consistently for a, like we three of us have over time, I think that's why you start to get those little rituals and those little ceremonies when you come home and the things, because it's almost, you know, the the best uh, explanation of ceremony I think I've come across here in, in recent times is I just read, I don't know, a couple of months ago, finished uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm-hmm. And in Braiding Sweetgrass, she says, you know, it's from a Native American tradition, ceremony, rem- it, it w- makes us remember to remember. Right, mm-hmm. which is a great, great way to think about it. And when you have those little ceremonies, and you know, by my definition, a ritual is part of a ceremony, but those words, but it, I think that in some ways that helps reassociate you, right? And when you were explaining that, then it's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because then that would explain why there's just certain things that you do 
to reacclimate yourself or even even the other way around like when you go to a hotel like that you know losing the car in the in the grocery store mark that was when i got to a new place and i was going to be there for a bit going and getting myself some good food to eat not having to eat out in a restaurant all the time was one of the ways that i fought that disassociation from not being at home right mm-hmm. um you know because it's you know sitting in a restaurant by yourself and eating is it's just depressing like it's like it's terrible like this is and i'm i'm very introverted i'm not meeting new people i don't want to meet no people i'm a homebody i don't want to leave home um don't talk to me i don't uh, like it's fine i'm good um so i'm not going out like Dwayne would be the exact opposite he'd be like man i gotta go out and meet some people i'm like fuck no i ain't going out there but, uh, no i got enough fr- i needed more friends in third grade Dwayne. i don't need friends now you know uh so I would so part of those that ceremony and stuff and it it did make a lot of sense. There's a definite and you're right. If I never had that feeling on any type of like say uh, backpacking or or mm-hmm. physical travel like low speed travel, let's say, um, so, never had it. Oh. And I've been in the woods. I've traveled you know a lot in in those realms. Um, you know, physically, because you, if you don't do it all the time, physically, you know, you have to adapt when you take like a long backpacking trip and you're walking 12, 15 miles a day. Like physically, you have to adapt a little bit. But there's a mental adaptation that doesn't happen. Like I've never woken up in a tent and been like, where the hell am I? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, well, there were a few times, but those were alcohol induced. So it was different. <laughs> um, all right. But I've, I've never, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in tents. Yeah. Well, I, I intense not intense <laughs> but uh one of the happy, so yeah it's it, one of the happiest memories too. in my life is spending 27 days in a month in a tent in four yeah. different places but i wow. i would just finish a, a an eight-day backpack trip and a buddy would call and say we're leaving tomorrow morning to go cycling you know uh are you in we're gone for five days yeah i'm in you know and I'd literally get home and like just change my clothes, keep the camping gear, just switch bags, and and we're off cycling. And and it was like another night in the tent and stuff. And it it was just mm-hmm. fabulous. It was one of the happiest months of my life. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah there, there's something, and like I said, when you compare high speed travel to low speed travel, what you said makes even more sense, right? Because yeah. you don't you don't. I've never experienced that disassociation with low speed travel. No, it's true. No. Yeah, you're right. Interesting, yeah. You know, Dwayne, your 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 idea of time travel. I, I think you're absolutely right. I I don't know that much about science or the science of time travel, but I don't think it's outside the realm of technological possibility. I think we may well see that within the next fifty or seventy five years, but we do not have any idea of what will be like as people right. having experienced time travel. Yeah. If, if we're leaving our soul behind now, what are we going to look like after time travel? Well, we won't have a soul. Or I'll be speaking gibberish or I'll be a vegetable or something. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when the camera was first invented, when and people, you know, all kinds of things created fear around that. And, you know, that we figure has not affected us. I don't know. But, but yeah, it's a... Uh, it's interesting. I never, you know, that was, a, you know, I mean, you guys probably heard about that where people thought like you take the picture that you captured their soul in that image and then they wouldn't. That's it's it's right. still a very prevalent belief with the Amish and Mennonite communities around. Wow. They do not, right. they do not like to have their picture taken. Some of it's privacy, 
which is understandable. You know, they're out there trying to do their job, and people are like, it's like a like a zoo. <laughs> um, but but the, some of them, some of the ones that are still fairly traditional, do have a pretty good. Um, <clears throat> they don't like to have their picture taken. They think that there's something yeah. wrong. Yeah. Like it'll it'll take something yeah, from them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> freeze time. I you know when you start talking about time travel, the older I get, I think we're time traveling now because it's time ain't a line; it's a circle. I don't. I think if you want time travel, you just got to live long enough. It all repeats itself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you look at your kids. It's like, damn. Yeah. Was I that stupid? I guess I was. You know, fair enough. When I first or, when I first started teaching at the college, one of the old time instructors said. Here, here's what you have to have in your office. You have to have a four-drawer filing cabinet. And what you do is you start your job, and you're going to fill just one drawer, okay, your first year of work here. And you fill that drawer, and all your work is going to be in that one drawer. And then the next year that you're working there, you start drawer number two. And at the end of year four, you take year four out, and you move the other three down and you put it in at the top and that will be brand new thinking in four years. <laughs> there you go. It's a perfect system, man. Right and now. you know, I was there for 25 years and he wasn't really wrong. He really wasn't. I saw stuff come Six back. Six filing cabinet rotations. Brand new thinking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's very true. It's very true how that, uh, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, just everything kind of yeah. repeats itself. Yeah. Or another. Yeah, you know, I, I we're so... You know, at my involvement with recovery, you know, in meetings, you know, one of the things is that however we all think we're so special and unique, like we're, you know, we're not like anyone else, you know, like, and we're so much more like each other than anything else. Like it, it, it generally speaking, I mean, we all are, have our own unique qualities, but overall, you know, we, we eat, we sleep, we, you know, we defecate, we, we fart. We, you know, all the stuff that we, we all love similar things. We all take enjoyment and rest in similar activities. Like there, there's so much similarity that, that, you know, we spend, we waste a lot of time trying to be special or thinking we're special rather than celebrating our likeness, you know? Um, and, and because there's such an infinite amount of support in, realizing how much like someone else you are or like like how alike you are you know there's a kinship that that you know and when we're trying to be so special and unique we we we, we take that away we alienate ourselves we make ourselves different and special and then we don't, it's harder to connect so uh yeah Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know. So here's a question for you. I've been work. Here's what I've been working on. Right. Like, how do you mark time? Right. Like everyone, like a calendar. Like it, what got me thinking about this is like everyone, like you know, now big marking of time is was like pre-pandemic, right? So this this pandemic has become kind of, and it. Is, I've been working on this for a while because as an author or a writer, right, it's one thing to, you know, you as a writer, you never want to tell anybody anything you want to show them. Right. If you can avoid telling the the reader, and so I remember I wrote a short story once, and it was it was about a school teacher was the main character, and instead of saying that he had been a school teacher for like eighteen years, I basically constructed this scene where he's sitting at his desk at his home office, and he's got eighteen class pictures on the wall behind him, one for each year, right? And in that sense, that character marked his time by the classes or a school year. 
And it's gotten me thinking, like, like, how do we really mark time? Calendar's one way, right? Watch is another way. But I'm starting to think that there's other ways to mark time. And I think we all do it. I'm just not sure how, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you mark time, right? Like, what, what is, like, like I said, now the big one now is it's like, did that happen before or after the pandemic, right? I'm not sure. Um, mark time, yeah. Being yeah in, I, I know I, I being, often will, will recognize milestone type events that I, I like to use the term era like you know like when zach went to college and there was that moment where like the boys are gone dj's in university zach's university like it was the end of an era like the boys are never they're never they're they're grow they're not going to really live home again like the, them going to school and all that went on for you know 12 13 years between the two of them it's over you know, it, it's the end of that time, and now a new phase will begin. You know, and I guess I would look at it like the next phase probably will be grandchildren, right? If that happens, so, or, mm-hmm. you know, and even 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 a pet like now having this dog like that that is a there's going to be the, that time frame of his life with us that will be a changing of a guard. You know, there's uh, or or a lot of times it's like like the pandemic or an illness or recovery from an illness. You know, that marks the, like a surgery. You know, I remember Shigo would always talk about him, his bout with cancer, and he was horizontal. Like he couldn't, he laid in a bed for four months. And he always talked about how significant it was to be vertical after that. Like it was like, the, every day you're vertical is a good day. Be thankful as if you're vertical because <laughs> they don't bury you standing up. <laughs> you know, he said, if you're so sick that you can't get vertical, that's a bad deal because you're one step closer to getting under the ground, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. right. So he would yeah. literally celebrate verticality. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I, think, I think the other side is is when we look at how we mark time and you're right kids are a big part of it right like how many times have you i'll, I'll say some, i'll be describing something to my daughter and say yeah this happened before you were born or when you were just a little baby right we use that as a reference but in the end then what does that really say about us and how we view our lives right which i think it's an interesting insight into how we see the world around us and hence ourselves how do we mark time right just yeah. my observations. I'm not looking for an answer. No, it's a, it's an interesting question. It, I, I love to ponder on it. Uh, I think for me, the marking of time is tied to, uh, first and foremost, the people around us, the family, kids, loved ones, immediate family, and then friends and other people. And we just had to say goodbye this week to a dear friend, um, We've only known her for four years, but she had to go back to India and they would not give, they gave her landed immigrant status, but not her 14 year old son and not her husband. And so they, they deported the son and sent him home. And, and so here she is in Canada, her husband's in India, her 14 year old gets deported back to India. So what's she doing here? She got her landed immigrant status, but it's like, for what? I don't want to be here. My, my family's at home. So she left. And and it was, I, I like your choice of words, Dwayne. It was an end of an era. It was it was a shift in our friendship to something else. And I, I don't know if I'm going to India anytime soon to see her. But, um, you know, it, 
it felt a loss and everything else. And how do we mark time? I think I mark time by events with people in my life, like loved ones, family, people I'm close to. Um, there's there's major things like when the whole world is going to die from this new disease if we don't get on top of it. This thing called COVID. It's like yeah, that was a big thing for global. That was a global thing. And I think that we mark things globally when it affects the world. But we, I think I tend to mark time based on, you know, when my brother died, when Dave died, you know, when yeah. when I lose people, uh, it's the, an end of an era, or I meet a new friend, I, I, uh, I develop a new friendship, or it's the beginning of an era, or somebody yeah. new comes yeah. into my life. Or, yeah. And so I, I tend to celebrate and mark time by my connectedness with others. Um, mm. That's just sort of a condensed version that I can think of on the top of my head right now. But. Well, you know, and it's interesting. It makes me think of how the First Nations with the prayer bundles, not to harp on that, but that how they still replenish those bundles at that massacre. Like, that's a marking of time that has been now going on for well over a century and like you said they view it as right very in the near recent past you know and when we think of cultures that have been in existence at 600 or homes or dwellings like 150 years ago is recent you know um yeah and and those are markings too you know like it's interesting it is fascinating you know where uh dennis like i i know where and I'm not saying we have to end, but I know we normally we we're probably getting close to, to it's over an hour, and it's been a great talk. But I was wondering and hoping, and I'm asking, and you don't have to. And it's and, but it when we do decide to close, just to plant this seed, and I should have maybe done it sooner. But I just came into my head as we were talking about this because Dennis does read poetry. And I don't know if something's coming to your mind. I, uh, I assume you may have some poetry I there. I don't. I don't read poetry. Okay. Okay. I go perform. ahead. Sorry. You what? I perform. I perform it. I perform. Perform it. Oh. Yes. It's. It's not reading a book. No. Okay. <laughs> Performance. That's but like is it a pe- reading is a it book a- is teaching. Okay. Okay. No, it's not. <laughs> but is it a, is it something that can be audioly performed? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be I know you're sitting in your office, so I'm assuming you have your, some of your favorite poets at hand. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rumi's never far. No. Rumi would say, "Today." Like every other day, we wake up empty and afraid. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. 
Yeah, roomy. Yeah. Never far. Good. <laughs> that's uh that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That is good. I don't know. It's the bar's too high now. I <laughs> tell stupid pirate jokes now and Usually, sound like the idiot I am. We had a little. Uh, we have a little coffee house here in Olds, and uh, and whenever I get up to do spoken word, it it, it has that impact. It like there'll be thirty mm-hmm. or forty people, and people are just oh wow, oh wow, and there's like silence after I finish. So whenever I do poetry, I request. That the guy who comes behind me is always Jeff, and Jeff is a, a you know he plays guitar and sings and stuff, and he has the filthiest songs. He has the best oh. rude songs, <laughs> and we always follow me with Jeff. <laughs> it's, it's, it's from the sacred to the profane, you know, back to back. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really a human experience, the two of us. <laughs> Well, you know, and such, yeah, and such is life, right? Like such is life. I mean, so much so, right? The 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 profane with the sanctity, you know, like and the and the everything in betweens, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it's like profane and profane and in sacred. It's like poop and paper. There's a certain order. It's just you can't have it out of order. <laughs> you know, one one has come for the other. It's just a mess. <laughs> You know, I, I was in a, a a sweat lodge with a with a, a blood elder, George Goodstriker, and uh, we had finished a round of sweat, and uh, and the flap opens, and people leave the lodge to cool off and stuff, and uh, and his brother is there in the sweat lodge, and he's got a bag a bad leg, a fused leg. And uh, so he, he's dragging his leg out and he gets, he, he's a very large man. He's about six foot five. His upper torso was outside the lodge and his waist and his leg that he's dragging is inside the lodge. And he lets out this big wet fart while we're still in the lodge. And everybody just bursts out laughing and he, he leaves. And he says, you know, there you go. Want to leave you guys with something, you know? And uh, anyway, I was just—I was mortified. I was just mortified by this. You know, afterwards, I went to, to George and I said, "George, uh, you know, I—I've come all this way to do this sweat, and I'm—you I'm, know—I'm—I'm I'm really struggling with what your brother did in the lodge. And he said, what are you talking? About? And I said, "Well, when he left the lodge and he farted like that." And he said, what's the problem? You know, you don't fart? And I said, of course I fart. Everybody farts. And he said, well, what was the problem? And I said, well, to me, this whole sweat lodge thing is like a spiritual thing. It's a religious, it's it's a religious experience to me. It's, yeah, it's, it's sacred. You know, you, like I grew up in the Catholic church and man, you, you don't fart like that in church. You know, you don't, you don't disrespect people like that and make a joke in a religious context and he says no you white people you're so uptight like you know the thing is about native people we have a very very sophisticated sense of humor we can laugh at ourselves we can laugh at our own spirituality because if we didn't have such a sophisticated sense of humor he says you couldn't look at our history and not cry 
He says, so we can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh at our own spirituality. We can laugh. And laughter is what has saved us. And uh, we're very proud of our sense of humor. And I'm like, wow, that's a whole different take on it. Because, you know, I was, yeah. I was mortified. <laughs> and, it, and it was funny. I mean, everybody laughed when he had his big... <laughs> <laughs> Except for the guy right behind him. Well, I really enjoyed this. This is a uh, this is really an enjoyable conversation with you fellas. So thank you for the opportunity to be. Here. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll look forward to having you join us next time. <laughs>